you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, please turn to the Epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 4. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4. We as a church body are currently in a series on the book of Ephesians. We're calling it God's New People. And this morning, uh, having looked at verses 7 through 12 last week of Ephesians 4, we'll come this morning to verses uh, 13 through 16. But in order to capture those verses in their context, I'd like to ask that we go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Uh, Please follow along as I read Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Would you pray with me once more? Our Father, in these moments now, we come before Your Word, the Bible. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. And so we come now to consider Your words contained in this particular passage in Ephesians 4. And we pray that as we seek to expound its contents and understand it and apply it to our own hearts and to our own church, we pray that you would assist us and give us grace. Pray that you would assist me in the opening up of this passage, that you would open up all of our hearts to receive the truth of your word contained in this text. And we pray that you would seek us faithfully to live before it and to live out the implications of it Uh, for the good of your people. And for the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd like to ask uh, each of you here this morning to think about your own lives, particularly to think about that job, that occupation, that activity in which you find yourself most engaged, that takes up most of your time during the day. Perhaps that's your job or career. Perhaps that's, for some of you, uh, school and academics. Uh, Perhaps that's raising your kids, perhaps that's keeping a home. Whatever that activity, that occupation, that job is, I want you to think about that uh, for just a few moments here. Now let me ask you, in that particular occupation, that particular activity, that particular role, that job, uh, how do you measure success in that occupation? How do you measure progress? Uh, How do you measure growth? How do you measure success in your job, your role, your occupation. 
If you run a business, you probably measure success by profits, and appropriately so. If you're a student, you probably measure success by grades. Maybe some of us who are students wish that it wasn't so. But you measure your success by the grade that you're given. If you're a parent, you probably measure success by the behavior, or growth, or development of your children. If you're a homemaker, perhaps you measure success by whether or not the house is clean, the refrigerator is stocked, and if the interior life of the home is in good working order. In all of these cases, success, growth, progress are measured in terms of discernible and quantifiable results. And we generally accept this as the norm, right? There are all sorts of people who have invested money in the stock market. They're called shareholders or stakeholders, and they're expecting uh, that particular company they've invested in to show them discernible results. And if they don't see those results, the shareholders' meeting can be quite um, uh, tense and cantankerous as the shareholders come. Expect, what have you done with our money? What return can you show us? How are you making use of our assets? But here's a question I want to ask us this morning. Should our approach to measuring health and success look any different in the church of Jesus Christ? We accept that in popular culture, business, and academics, it's legitimate to look to quantifiable, visible, discernible results as the measure of success. My question is, should it look any different for the church of Jesus Christ? Is the health of the body of Christ and its progress and growth to be measured primarily by immediately visible and quantifiable results? Or does the Bible provide us with different metrics for success? In essence, I'm asking, we as a church, we as a congregation, how can we know that we're well-pleasing to God and that we are in a state of health? How can we know if we're actually succeeding as a church? How will we measure that? This is a a question not only relevant to us as a, a young church plan, a newly formed church in this area, But it's rather something lots of churches, young or old, are constantly thinking about. How do we measure success? I could testify as a pastor. My uh, email inbox is constantly inundated with promotional material about uh, seminars to help jumpstart my ministry. Uh, uh, Or a new video series or online tool guaranteeing to raise financial giving in the church by 20%. Or perhaps a new book or conference about the next big thing in church growth. And the assumption seems to be that success in the church is measured by how many people attend, by how big the church's budget is, and about how much marketing and social media traction the church can generate. Well, the Bible does not ignore the topic of church growth, church health, church success. In fact, in the verses before us this morning, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, Paul is laying out I understand to be his vision and strategy for church growth. Last week we considered this plan that Christ has given to his church, this provision Christ has given to his church of giving spiritual gifts to his people and giving leaders to the church to equip believers so that the believers can carry on the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the the plan Christ has given. But in verses 13 through 16 we have this vision for what success will look like. If that plan is implemented what will be the results what's the goal what is the vision for church growth but see paul's vision i'm going to argue in this sermon is not a church growth strategy that measures success by numerical growth and bigger budgets and bigger buildings 
It's not a church growth strategy that necessarily delivers a quantifiable return on investment that is immediately visible. Rather, it is a church growth strategy that measures success in unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. That's the vision of church that Paul wants to hold up for these Ephesians. How will you know you're making it? How will you know you're healthy? How will you know you're succeeding? The vision Paul is holding forth for the church in Ephesus is one of unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. So this morning, we want to consider Paul's vision for church growth and success in Ephesians 4, 13 through 16. And I want to do it by asking four questions of the text. Four questions we want to ask. First of all, we'll ask, what is the goal of this vision? What's the target? What's the aim? What is Paul trying to get at? What's the goal of this vision Paul is holding forth? Secondly, what is the result of this vision? Thirdly, how is this vision achieved? And then fourthly and finally, what is the prevailing characteristic of this vision? What is the goal? What is the result? How is the vision achieved? And what is to be the prevailing characteristic of this vision? So first of all, consider with me the first question, what is the goal of this vision? Please read with me again verses 11 through 13 of Ephesians 4. Paul says that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now there are three prepositions in verse 13, three prepositional phrases which direct us to the goal Paul is laying out for the church. Now there's a sense in which all three of these goals are getting at the same thing, but I think they can be summarized as unity, maturity, and then thirdly, Christ-likeness. We're going to follow the prepositions here to get at what is this vision? What's the goal Paul is aiming for? First of all, we're told that we're to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, we've seen again and again, those of you who have been with us for this series, uh, we've seen again and again, haven't we, the priority in the book of Ephesians given to unity. Unity in the body of Christ. Uh, the Ephesians had their unity purchased, Jew and Gentile. Their unity was purchased by Christ through His death on the cross. And that is expounded for us in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 12. Then Ephesians 3 tells us that Paul's ministry was in part dedicated to conveying that Jews and Gentiles are united as one body and are both included in the redemptive purposes of Christ. And then Ephesians 4 opens with that famous statement that we are to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now Paul tells the Ephesians that the goal of the church, the target, the aim, the purpose of the church is to attain unity. But this unity is not left vague and unspecific. It is objective unity founded upon the truth. So it's not as though, hey, we're all here. We all like each other. Let's join hands and sing a song. Uh, the unity that we're called to is given some definition. Uh, it is unity that's not left vague, not left unspecific. We're told to attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The vision here is of a church that is of one mind and heart in what they believe about Christ and how they live in union with Him. So there's, there's clarity, there's definition to the unity. The unity is in the faith. It's, it's in what we say and what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that that unites us. 
And it's in living out our union with him that this unity is realized within the church. The church is united in the faith. And they're united in their knowledge of Christ. This is one of the metrics, uh, one of the measures of success by which we can know as a church, are we healthy? Are we living out the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God? But now the second uh, uh, measure that Paul gives us. I'm calling it maturity. That second prepositional phrase there. We're to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and then to mature manhood. Basically, I think the idea here is that we're not to remain children in the faith, but we're to seek to grow into adulthood. You parents, you would think there's something wrong with a teenager who just refuses to grow up. Uh, As they're getting older, the years are moving on. They want to behave as much as ever, like children. They're refusing to take on adult responsibilities. Why? Because the goal, the point is, as you grow up, to attain maturity, to actually reach adulthood, to grow up. That is the goal, to to grow, to mature, to reach adulthood. Well, the same holds true for Christians in the church. God wants maturity for his people. He wants growth for his people. He doesn't want us to remain as children. Rather, he wants us to arrive at, to attain to mature manhood, to reach adulthood, to grow. So can I make a very simple wayside application here? Not the main point of this text, just an application for us this morning. Churches should not only be concerned about drawing in new converts. That is not the only thing we're to be about as the church. Churches should be passionately concerned about the growth and maturity of existing believers. And you parents here know this. Uh, it is not the end-all, be-all of parenting just to birth children, just to, just to have that little one. My job as a parent is just to have kids, just to birth them and bring them into the world. Well, if that were your philosophy of parenting, very quickly social services would take your children from you, right? Because not only are we to have the child, to birth the child into the world, but we're to raise that child, and in many ways the hard work of parenting begins after that child is born. Now you have to raise and nurture this child and bring this child into adulthood. That's the goal of parenting. You parents, that's your mission, to take this little one who is dependent on you in so many ways, you're trying to bring them up into maturity and into adulthood and to realize uh, adults who are mature and and, and no longer dependent on your nurturing uh, to sustain them. Well, just like in parenting, so it is in the church. Uh, The end-all, be-all of the church is not just to save as many people as possible. And we want to save as many people as possible. Yet one of our goals must be the ongoing nurture and growth and maturity of God's people. Listen, brothers and sisters, my friends here, those of you who are in Christ, your maturity matters to God. Your growth matters to Christ. Our goal as a church is to present men and women at the last day, whole in Christ. We are to grow up. It's not wrong to be a child in the faith when you are a child in the faith. But the goal is maturity. The goal is growth. The goal is to reach adulthood. Well, you might ask, what does this maturity look like? If we're to grow, if we're to be mature, if we're to be adults in the faith, what does that look like? Well, I think the third phrase that we're given here uh, clarifies for us what maturity looks like. So we've seen that we're to grow in unity, Growing maturity, now thirdly, Christ-likeness. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does maturity look like? What does it mean to be an adult in the faith? 
What does it mean to achieve growth in the faith? It's to look more like Jesus. That's the definition of maturity. It is to look like Christ. If Christ is the standard, brothers and sisters, then we never arrive. You ever notice some Christians act as though they've arrived? Like, okay, I got the fire insurance, I got the information, and now I just kind of live this out and I'm waiting for heaven. There's meant to be progress and growth and maturation. And the measure by which we measure ourselves is the standard of Christ, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I assure you, brothers and sisters, if you look at Jesus, you'll see some ways in which you need to grow. Ways in which you don't look perfectly like Christ. Uh, ways in which you still need to mature in the faith and mature in Christ's likeness. Well, this is as it ought to be. This is the goal for Christian people, that we would look more like Jesus from year to year. And I hope that it's true of you, that you can look back on yourself five years ago and say, you know, thanks be to God, I'm, I'm not perfect, I've not yet achieved to the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, but I look a little bit more like Him than I did five years ago. And God helping me by His grace, I'll look more like Him five years from now, and ten years from now, and a thousand years from now. The goal for you, my brother, my sister, is that you would grow in maturity. That you would grow into adulthood. That you would grow in Christ-likeness. This is Paul's vision for the church. As he's writing to the Ephesians, and he's giving his, his plan for how they're to live among one another, and he's talking about the provision of leaders and the equipping of believers and ministry among the body. He says, this is how you know you're making it. This is the goal, that we would attain to unity, that we would attain to maturity, that we would attain to Christ-likeness. Now, one final observation before we move on from this question with respect to the goal of Paul's vision for church growth. Uh, it shouldn't be lost on us. We shouldn't neglect to recognize that this is a corporate goal. Uh, we are not content if, if three or four people in the church are particularly mature. Rather, the text says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And this is a, a corporate mission for us. We as a church family, as a church body, want to grow in these things, in unity, in maturity, and Christ-likeness. Well, this is Paul's vision for church growth. This is his uh, goal for the church growth strategy. It is a church body in which all the members together are growing in unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. But Paul, what about, what about the numbers? What about numerical growth? What about year-over-year -year budget analytics? What about progress on the new building campaign? Maybe some new additions to the staff would be nice. I get it, you want us to grow in unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness, but, but how can I fit that and craft that into a fundraising report? Can you give me some numbers that I can share that will really wow my donors? Friends, what has become of us? Where did we lose our way? I invite you, I call you to come back to the Bible and back to God's way. Don't be fooled by business gurus and marketing specialists. Let all our perspectives be governed by the Scriptures. We don't measure our success, brothers and sisters, by how many chairs are set up on Sunday morning. We measure our success by how much we look like Jesus. How united we are in the faith. How mature we have become by the grace of God. Until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, it's not easy, and it's not getting easier, to adopt this perspective of growth. It means you'll have to be okay 
with not being into all the things that the cool kids are into. It's going to have to be all right with that. But I promise you, Christ's ways are better. The way of the Bible is better. Let us measure our hearts and our health and our growth and maturity as a church before the Scriptures, before this text. It may never be that we grow in unity and maturity in Christ-likeness. 1 Samuel chapter 16. You don't need to turn there. Uh, but the prophet Samuel has been told by God, you know, Saul is reigning as king at that time. Paul, or excuse me, God says to Samuel, I, I've rejected Saul. He sinned against me. He's not going to be the one on my throne. He's not, no longer going to be my anointed one. He sent Samuel on a mission to find this son of Jesse who will reign on the throne and who will be God's anointed. And so Samuel's on this task to find this son. He goes and finds Jesse and he's looking upon Jesse's sons. And in verse 6, reads this. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab. Apparently Eliab was handsome, he was strong, he was impressive. He looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This must be the guy. Look at him. He's strong. He's got a vibrant, full beard. You know, this, is, this is the man right here. This is the one who must be God's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now this is not a text about the church. I'm taking it somewhat out of context. But I'm tempted to say God sees churches this way. He doesn't, he's not impressed by how many people follow our church Instagram. God looks on the heart. He doesn't see as man sees. He's not, he's not impressed by the glitz and the glamour and the production. He looks upon the heart. And may it be when he looks on the heart of Emmanuel Church, he will find these things. Growth in unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. May it ever be so. Second question we want to ask of the text, and we'll move more quickly now. What is the result of this vision? We've seen the goal. It's that the church would grow in unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. But what's the result? If we actually attain these things, arrive at these things, what will be the outcome, the result? Look again at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. What is the result of attaining this goal? Well, it's basically that we would no longer be mature and unstable disciples. It's not a good thing to be tossed to and fro by the waves and be carried about like a ship on the ocean, just blown about wherever the winds will take them, wherever the waves will take them. It's not good to be unstable and immature in the faith. And if we realize the vision that Paul is holding before us, we will not be immature, we will not be unstable. Now in this verse, verse 14, Paul quickly moves between uh, three different images that capture something of this immaturity that we're to work against. Uh, first he says we're not to be like children. We'll no longer be like children. Let me make a distinction here for us, okay? Childlike faith is good. Childishness in the faith is bad. Childlike faith, good. Childishness in the faith, bad. Childlike humility, good. 
Childish ignorance, immaturity, and gullibility is bad. Now let me say this. There's, there's nothing wrong inherently with being a child, obviously. Nothing wrong about being a child. How cruel would it be to look at a seven-year-old and say, you're just acting like a child. Why can't you act like a mature adult? Nothing wrong with being a child. That's totally natural. That's totally healthy. That's totally normal. Expecting a, an eight-year-old to behave like a 38-year-old is unhealthy. However, remaining a child is unhealthy. Resisting growing up and maturing into adulthood is unhealthy. Expecting that it's legitimate for a 38-year-old to behave like an 8-year-old is unhealthy. Refusing to grow up, refusing to mature is unhealthy. Listen, Peter Pan ought to be read to your children as a cautionary tale. The boy who would never grow up. There's no, no, no virtues to be found there in Peter Pan. Remaining childish, listen, friends, is sinful and an affront to God. Pursuing childishness into adulthood is not virtuous. It is wicked. We're meant to grow up. That is God's design. As it is so in in life, so it is true in the Christian faith. It's not wrong to be a child in the faith when you're first converted. When you're first born again, you're an infant in Christ. It can't be otherwise. There's nothing sinful about being a babe in Christ when you're actually a babe in Christ. However, it is sinful. I think to be 10 years in Christ and to not have made any discernible progress with respect to your knowledge of God and His Word and in your maturity as a disciple. Just like in life, uh, newborn saints are expected to grow up and to mature in the faith. We're to no longer be children. There's to come a point where we've moved past milk and we've moved on to solid food. And that image is used so many times in the New Testament. I'll just direct you to one example. You don't need to turn there, but it's in Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 14. The writer to the Hebrews is trying to convey uh, mature doctrine to his audience. Uh, But then he rebukes them. He says, verse 11 of Hebrews 5, about this, about this body of doctrine, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the word of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's not not something to be glorified. Childishness in the faith. Rather, we are to seek to mature. To seek to grow up into adulthood. Never leaving behind childlike faith and childlike humility. But we are to achieve, by God's help, maturity in the faith. Second image Paul uses here is a a boat tossed about on the waves. He says, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You can imagine a boat at sea in the midst of a storm. No control over its direction or where it's going to go. It's just tossed around from place to place, hanging on for dear life. I think the focus here with this image is false teaching. But probably not overtly false teaching like, like Jesus isn't the Son of God. I don't think Paul's concerned uh, that the Ephesians are going to be, be deceived by that one. I think Paul has in mind more subtle forms of error. The kind of insidious error that creeps in if we're not careful and discerning. I think he also has in mind a certain theological faddishness that can warp and twist the church in her purpose and direction. And Paul is saying, don't be tossed around by that stuff. Look, the winds are going to blow. 
There are going to be some, some trends and fads that, that come into the church. There are going to be some, some insidious errors that creep into teaching. But you can't be tossed around or deceived by those things. You can't be cajoled and manipulated by those things. The goal is to be mature. See, a mature Christian is not deceived by popular church fads. A mature Christian is not easily swayed by erroneous teaching on Scripture. A mature Christian, one grounded in Christ and His Word, is not enslaved to whatever captivates the popular imagination. A mature Christian doesn't just follow the crowds. A mature Christian knows what he or she believes and knows how to articulate it. A mature Christian is equipped to study out an issue carefully. A mature Christian is not impulsive or rash. A mature Christian prays for and seeks to grow in biblical discernment. A mature Christian does not stand on the shifting sands of cultural winds and trends, but on the solid ground of Christ and His Word. And so a mature Christian is able to withstand the pressures of an eloquent college professor. A mature Christian is willing to appear unpopular or arcane for the sake of godliness. A mature Christian does not compromise his or her principles for the sake of expediency and the approbation of man. If we achieve Paul's vision for growth and unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness, the, the promise is we will no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We won't be blown around by the wind. We will be grounded in Christ in His Word. Paul wants these Ephesians to value maturity and stability and consistency in the faith. Virtues that, that don't seem to be as valued, perhaps, as they used to be in the church today. Maturity stability, and consistency. May God raise up in this place men and women of the faith who through the grace of Christ and through maturation in His Word and in the relationship and their walk with Jesus, may they be marked by maturity, stability, and consistency. The third image that's used describing the immaturity that Paul is calling us away from is someone who falls prey to a deceiver or a charlatan. Verse 14 says that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The term that's translated human cunning literally refers to dice throwing, like in in games of chance, like throwing the dice. The picture here is people who are cheated and defrauded or deceived. The picture here is uh, uh, those who are taken in by charismatic leaders who carry with them crafty rhetoric and slick turns of phrases. Well, dear ones, I can only encourage you, don't be taken in. Don't be foolish. Be discriminating with respect to who you follow. Be discerning with who you trust and who you listen to. Don't just listen to anyone on your podcasts. Uh, Don't just imbibe any particular teacher. Seek to be discerning with those who you give your mind and your heart to and who you seek to follow. Don't allow yourself to be deceived by human cunning and craftiness. Third question we want to ask of this text now. We've asked for the goal. We've asked for the result of the vision. The third question is, how is this vision achieved? How is this vision achieved? How are we going to attain to unity and maturity in Christ's likeness so that we're no longer children tossed to and fro, uh, deceived by craftiness and human cunning? How will this be achieved? The answer in our text is this will be through our vital connection with Christ. Through our vital connection with Christ. Verse 15, follow along as I read. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this image we're given here in verses 15 through 16 is a very, very complicated and highly complex and figurative image. Okay, it's, not, it's not transparently clear, I think, what Paul is getting at. It's a very complex and figurative image. And I want my comments only to clarify and illuminate rather than confuse. So I think the idea is basically this. That we, Christians, we grow by being vitally connected to Christ. And that, that vital connection moves in two directions. Okay? We grow directionally into Christ who is the head. It is you have this body. We're all members of the body. And the body grows up into the head. The head is like the fulcrum, the, vocal, the, the, the focal point of the body. Uh, in, in this era, this age, the body was seen as sort of the, the climax of the body. We think of it sometimes as the heart. But the, the head was viewed as sort of the apex of the body. We grow directionally as members of the body into Christ. And then the second direction is that we grow from Christ, and I'm getting that from verse 16, from whom the whole body builds itself up, etc. We're growing into Christ's likeness and into submission to Christ, and we're growing through or from Christ. He is supplying us with all that we need to continue to grow into Him. So the idea is this, Christ is before us, Christians, and Christ is behind us. Christ is the goal we're striving for. We're growing up into Him to look more like Him, to submit more fully to Him, to live out our union more consistently with Him. He is the goal we're striving for or toward, and He is the means through which we strive. We grow up into Him and we grow up through Him. We achieve this vision for church growth through looking to Christ and attaching ourselves to Him and drawing our life and our growth and our vitality from Him. Now a fourth and final question we want to ask of this text. What is the prevailing characteristic of this vision? What's the prevailing characteristic of this vision? Couldn't think of a better way to phrase this final point, but there's something in the text I want us to see that just has to be acknowledged. Okay? And so I'm asking this question. What is the prevailing characteristic of this vision? And the answer, very simply is love. It's love. Love is to characterize and to govern this vision for church growth that Paul is holding forth. Verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 15 says that we are to be governed by speaking the truth in love. This phrase is probably meant to contrast with the statement in verse 14 about those who seek to mislead by human cunning. They don't love the sheep. They don't love the body. They're seeking to deceive. But as for you, Ephesians, you speak the truth in love. You, you speak the truth in such a manner that it is characterized by love. Now, I don't think, as some have argued... That Paul is trying to create a dichotomy between truth and love, as if somehow they're at odds with each other. 
Rather, I think Paul is trying to say the governing characteristic in our pursuit of unity is to be love. We love one another because we love the truth. And we love pointing one another to the truth because we love one another. And we want to see one another grow in the truth because we love one another. These two characteristics of love and truth are not at odds with one another, but live in perfect harmony with one another. And thus we're to speak the truth in love. And so Paul's vision for the church is a collection of people who speak the truth in love out of love for one another. There's a reciprocal relationship between truth and love. The truth is guiding how we love one another, and our love for one another is guiding how we seek to speak the truth to one another. And then I love the final words of verse 16. This is sort of like we finally arrived at the zenith of Paul's theology for the church, his vision for the church. It's like the crown jewel of Paul's vision for the church. The church body builds itself up in love. This, this great mass structure that's being built up, it's built up in love. Love is permeating the church. Love is the prevailing characteristic of the church. Now, how exactly are we to understand this idea? How does it just build itself up in love? Well, this is not the first time Paul has used building imagery uh, in the epistle to the Ephesians. He's talked about the church being like a building already. He does so at the end of chapter 2. If your Bibles are open, perhaps you could just turn there. This is the first time where Paul introduces this idea of the church being a building. Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22 reads as follows. So then you, Jews and Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What's the idea here? The church is built on this foundation. There's this foundation that's laid in the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Truth, apostolic doctrine, is set as the foundation. Christ himself is the cornerstone by which everything else is measured. The foundation for the church is sound teaching, sound doctrine, truth. And that's how the church grows up at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. But now we have this statement in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Maybe I'm seeing something we're not meant to see. I I see a slight contradiction, a slight difference between the end of Ephesians 2 and the end of Ephesians 4. The focus on the building imagery in Ephesians 2 is truth. The focus in chapter 4 is love. It's, It's love that builds up the church. In Ephesians 2, it's this foundation of truth upon which the church is built. Well, how do we reconcile these two images? It's possible that Paul doesn't intend for us to reconcile these images. Perhaps he was just employing building imagery in chapter 2 to accomplish one purpose there, and now it's totally unconnected. He's using it in a different way in chapter 4. But I don't think that's the case. I think there's a way we're meant to reconcile these two passages. Here's how I understand the building imagery in Ephesians 4. The apostles and prophets... The scriptures, doctrine, teaching, Christ himself who is the chief cornerstone, that's like the foundation stone. That's the the slab that's laid upon which everything else is erected. You don't have that in place 
There are cracks in that foundation. If we're not clear on what's true according to the Bible, the whole structure will fall and collapse. You must have a doctrinal foundation. Truth must be the foundation of the entire structure. And yet, as various stones, living stones, as we're called in another place in Scripture, as various bricks are coming together to build up this habitation for God, to build up this structure, love is like the cement between the bricks that keeps them together. How is it that all these people from various backgrounds and, and, and various uh, economic uh, uh, places on the, on, on the spectrum of, of society, how is it that they could all be in one church together? People from various backgrounds and cultures, here they are in one body. How are they going to be held together? I think the, the idea is this. You have to have this foundation of truth. And you have to have this cement, this glue of love that's holding the bricks together. So I don't think it's illegitimate to say... I think this is borne out in experience that churches rarely stay together, really never stay together because of doctrine. Churches get started because of doctrine. Churches must have doctrine. It's utterly necessary, utterly vital, but they never stay together generation after generation because of doctrine. Churches stay together because of love. Churches don't make progress by a shared commitment to doctrine. They make progress by a shared commitment to love one another. And listen, what I'm saying in no way depreciates the value of sound doctrine. Those of you who are familiar with our church, we've undertaken fastidiously uh, to spell out what we believe the Bible is to teach in our confessional statements. And some of you in the new members class will hear about that today. But Emmanuel Church is not going to be here 50 years from now if we just continue to agree to the abstracted principles. We'll be here 50 years from now because there's been an intentional commitment on the part of the members to love one another church will build itself up in love. That's the glue that will keep this church together. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And love being that cement that holds us together. That glue that holds the people together. The church is to build itself up in love. Well, as I conclude, this is Paul's vision for church growth. As Christ gives, gives leaders and leaders equip believers and believers serve the body, the church grows in unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. This is the goal. Uh, this is one of those passages by which we measure our success as a church. This is uh, uh, the, the, the metrics for a healthy church. Are we growing in unity? Are we growing in maturity? Are we growing in Christ-likeness? So the last thing I want to say is this. It's something that I said at a members meeting uh, a month or two ago. And I uh, wanted to repeat in a sermon context like this, okay? We constituted in August. That was, I guess, four or five months ago. And God has been uh, uh, unusually kind to us. He's given us many gifts. We have a comfortable facility to meet in. He's given us all the funds that we need to carry on this ministry. And he's provided you, more and more people, uh, as the church has grown from what was just a handful of people, uh, even at the beginning of this year, now to what you see before you this morning. There has been numerical growth. Our budget has grown. Our meeting space has got nicer and nicer as the months have gone on. And these are gifts from God, and we ought to thank God for them. These are, these are wonderful. We want the church to grow. 
We want to have more money so that we could see the, the, the mission of Christ advanced in the world. We want to have a comfortable facility to meet. And these are gifts from Christ, and we would be uh, remiss if we didn't thank Him for them. God has been very kind to us. But as God is giving us gifts like this, church growth and things like that, let us not allow ourselves to tether our hearts to discernible results as the measure of church health. Listen, we could be a healthy church, well-pleasing to God, as a group of 25 people meeting in my basement, worshiping the Lord. We could be in every way pleasing to God and healthy by these metrics. Doesn't depreciate the value of growth. We want to see people coming to church and believing on Jesus and growing in the faith and more and more people doing that. And that's our goal here. We want to see that happen. But let us not measure our health and whether or not we're pleasing to God by how many chairs are set up on Sunday mornings. Hopefully we only ever set up more and more. But there may be periods of decline. There may be years when our membership doesn't grow. Maybe it even, it even uh, declines a little bit. Doesn't mean that God has left the house and that His Spirit is no longer with us. We could still grow in unity and maturity and Christ-likeness. Even in seasons of want, even in those seasons when we're in the desert, even when those seasons when the, when the church is not seeing the visible results that we long to see. Let us measure our health by this vision Paul conveys. And to me it's encouraging, it's exciting to think we can realize this vision with 20 people and we could realize this vision with 2,000. I want the 2,000, don't get me wrong. But let's be faithful to God's word. And let's remember that God doesn't look upon the outward appearance as man does. He looks at the heart. And with that before our minds, let us seek to be faithful, to grow in these things. Because it's these things that we know are well-pleasing to our God. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you are not determined to leave us as children but it's your desire for us that we would continue to grow into maturity and into adulthood. And it's your design for us that we would grow in Christ-likeness. And so Lord, help each one of us to firmly set Christ before our eyes. And may we seek to grow into Him, constantly striving and wrestling and moving toward the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. May you be pleased in this place to teach us and show us how to mature, how to grow in a way that honors Christ and gives glory to you, our Father. We pray that we would not be tempted to look on the outward appearance and only see as man sees, uh, but to seek to busy ourselves and concern ourselves with, with those things that we know matter to you, that you value, that you treasure. May we love the Lord Jesus Christ and seek every day uh, to be more and more like Him. Keep the Savior before our eyes, both individually and corporately as a church. May it be true of us that we would attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do this, Lord, for our good and because it glorifies You and honors You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.